cisterns in Soria, where they were soaked and soaked and soaked again, and then unraveled. The unraveling required the labor of comb girls, who clawed the silk apart with the nails of their middle fingers notched in one, two, three places, notched to the detriment of their lovers' backs, or the flesh of anyone else they might care to touch, themselves included. After the labor of the worms was thus undone, the silk was ready to be twisted into thread at the throwing mills, also in the city of Soria. In the mill yards, the crated unraveled silk was unloaded by the men who worked there, the shining work of our worms thus passing from the hands of maidens to those of swains. From one to the other, like a secret, like a greeting, like a whispered promise of more and better gifts to come. Or so I liked to dream as I fed the worms, for though I had never seen a twisting mill myself, I knew that its clacking, groaning machines were tended by young men who labored long days for little money, not even a hundred maravedis, a scant handful of coins, barely enough to buy them their suppers and an occasional trinket for a sweetheart, my papa said. Twisted into hanks of fine, strong thread, the silk was crated again and carried from the mill to the washworks nearby, where it was tied in bags and boiled in soapy water, then rinsed and dried and bleached in fumes of burning sulfur. From the washworks, the silk was crated one last time and then carried to the dye artists in Apila, whose hands were permanently stained black from endless immersion in pigments. Their ears and noses, too, if they were like me and in the habit of absent-mindedly scratching an itch. The dye artists made our silk purple, perhaps, or red or green, dropping each white hank into a cauldron of color. I could picture the nearly naked vat boys as they slowly stirred the strands with a pole, sweat running down their thin chests and into their loincloths. For in the dye works, with its boiling cauldrons, they could wear nothing more— and naked they carried the dripping hanks out to the factory yard's great racks and hung them there to dry. Woven then by the weavers in that same city, each lustrous colored thread held tight by a loom's jumping heddle until it was battened fast to another, made to lie forever between its neighbors, one slender stroke of color after another, placed so as to create a pattern, a shining, dreamlike scene of ever-leaping deer and wheeling birds, of imagined animals following one another, caught in the fabric for all eternity, or an endless meditative weave of repeating geometric symmetries, squares inside squares, stripes and circles and crescents, trapezoids and triangles and pyramids of silk. A year of ample rain, in truth, I cannot remember a year of ample rain, other than the one in which it all arrived between one Sabbath and the next and coursed down the mountain and through our house. But by the end of a tolerably wet season, our worms produced silk sufficient for about forty pairs of hose, a modest accomplishment given the work it took, the efforts of our whole family, though one that grew in my imagination and in my dreams." grew until it was enough silk to clothe the grandest assembly the land had ever seen. 
Enough silk for a state wedding or funeral. Hundreds of dresses, thousands of doublets, collars and cloaks and cuffs and ruffs of silk. Enough silk for tapestries to drape every inch of cold stone wall in the king's palace in Madrid. Enough to carpet each stone stair and to lay a shining path for the king to tread to his queen's bedchamber. Enough for his forces, too, his armies and his navies. Enough to rig an entire armada. Sails, shrouds, and yards of silk. Red and green, white, blue, gold, all shimmering on the surface of the ocean, like light broken by the water into every conceivable color. Enough for a thousand silk dancing slippers. Picture it like this. Picture it as I have countless times.